Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Hello, welcome to Tiny Revolutions. I'm Tiff Stevenson and I'm talking to some of your favourite creators, comedians, authors, musicians about what their tiny revolutions are. This week on the podcast, he's the daddy. He's the podfather himself. (laughs) Put your hands together. And when I say put your hands together, I mainly just mean me and the guests for the fantastic Andy Zaltzburn. Hello, Tiff. Hello. Did you mean put your hands together as in, you know, pray? Or do do you have to put your hands together and take them apart and put them together again in quick succession as you just did? Yes, the the latter. The latter. Although I could pray to you. But why not? There have been stranger gods in human history. (laughs) And I did refer to you as the podfather. Exactly. which, which (laughs) Which I believe you are. And we'll get into more of that. You've been a tiny revolution to me. So everyone that's done the podcast thus far has been a tiny revolution to me. And I'll tell you why you've been a tiny revolution. I've seen your shows up in Edinburgh over the years, and you're pretty much maybe the only person that can make me laugh at a pun, (laughs) which I think (laughs) is a skill because of the lengths that you will go to to crowbar something so silly and so funny into a pun. I absolutely love it. And I can only I can only have Zaltzman puns. If anyone else tries, I want to hit them. <laughs> and yeah, I just I, I love the surreal silliness of uh seeing your shows up at the fringe. I remember actually one year, I think it was Daniel Kitson, we did a lineup show together. It might have been about two thousand and seven or 2006 and it was the very last night of the fringe it might have been the bbc presents and daniel kitson was handing out flyers for your run (laughs) (laughs) on the last day and heckling and interrupting you which is a very good introduction to andy zaltzman (laughs) so before we get into edinburgh and all of those other things the first question i have is is basically becoming not to sound too uh, Red Dragon about it, <laughs> do you see? But was this design or happy accident that you are Andy Zaltzman, satirist, comedian? How did this happen? Was this meant to be? I've, I've no idea, to be honest, Tiff. Um, <laughs> I mean, it did happen largely by accident in that I hadn't really thought of um, comedy as a career until after I'd started doing it. So I was always interested in it, and um, I guess through my... I mean, I had a school report when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, saying this child has no sense of humour and needs to lighten up, essentially. So <laughs> maybe I took that on board slightly too much, and now I find it hard to take anything seriously. So, yes, it wasn't... Uh, I mean, my, my, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a youngster, my ambition was to be a cricket journalist, and I've ended up becoming you know working in cricket via comedy so um i think that that's more what i'd sort of imagined myself being when i was when i was young and and comedy you know i did i guess i you know i've made people laugh increasingly during school and then university but i didn't really think of it as a 
as a potential career, particularly not after when I left university. I went to the Edinburgh Festival mostly just to watch a few things, and I did three open mic spots, having done a few a few shows in a nice, cosy uh, university venue. And my first three open mic spots at the Edinburgh Festival went so badly that I <laughs> gave up and thought, well, that's that then. I'm never going to do that again. And it was about 18 months before I then started doing the open mic circuit in London. So I, yeah, I'm not sure it was... Uh, as a youngster, I'd never sort of pictured myself as a, as a professional comedian, but I'm not sure I really knew that that was a, an option either. A straight statistician. Yes. Is, is that how you say Statistician. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I listen, statistician. I, listen, I listen to cricket commentary on the radio from when I was, I don't know, six or seven years old uh, and always loved the statistics. After my dad gave me a book which had a load of kind of charts and scorecards in the back when I was seven years old. And so... So I mean that 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 was more of a likely career to me than than comedy. I think you grew up in a creative household because your dad's a sculptor, right? Yes, yes, he was a a, a sculptor. He's recently stopped doing it at the age of seventy nine. But yes, yeah, so, I would so, say, and he you know just had a had a studio, basically an old converted farm building, and um, so I guess there was a role model in in our lives for um. The, Three of us. My, we have an old elder brother, Richard and Helen, the uh, famous, notorious uh, podcaster and occasional uh, bugle <laughs> guest, uh, who is um, younger than me by about five years. And so, so we grew up with, without a sort of regular kind of standard career role model uh, from from our father, who you know disappeared off to his studio and made sculptures and then came back in the evening. He literally created something out of nothing. Yes. Well, he created It's some... an idea. Yes. And then he sculpts and creates. Yes. Out of wax and metal and plaster of Paris. Yes. And things like that. So, yes, I guess we didn't grow up thinking, you know, there's certain careers that we should be doing. So I guess that gave us a... A blank canvas and a uh, and uh, well, almost a pat- <laughs> not not really a, a sort of pattern to follow, but um, there was no well, there was there was there was no sort of strictures on what we could uh, what we I guess what we could think of as a as a way to 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 live a life. There was no sitting down and saying, Andy, you've got to get serious now. What are you going to do as a job? Yes, you need a nine to five. Uh, yes. That that's a conversation that I've uh, I've never had, um, but uh, so yeah, so that was uh, yeah, it was a, I guess a, a, a part a fairly formative part of our our childhoods growing up with a with a with a father who didn't do a regular a regular job, and also it, because he's in the process of creativity and his work being sort of received, I guess this is a very early entry into what it's like to create something and then have it critiqued. Um, Do you remember any of that or not really? You just remember the... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, he didn't sort of have that many exhibitions or anything. There were sort of occasional sporadic sales, but th- that wasn't really part of it. I guess the, the the element of the creative lifestyle was that, you know, that, that sort of difficulty of, uh, you know... Of, selling stuff i guess of um yeah that that there's more to creativity than just making stuff and um you know there's a i guess a necessity to try and build a career around it which maybe is something that that our father didn't concentrate on quite as much as he, as he could have done he made all these beautiful things and they mostly ended up in our house so which so it's lovely right. to grow up in <laughs> so monetizing because that was one of the things that my parents had because my dad was in a band but he also worked in management and stuff like that. So my family were a bit more like, there isn't really money to be made here. This is the fun stuff. Even though my aunt was was an actress, but it was seen as a, a bit of a frivolity, <laughs> like a bit of a, this is a bit of frippery. This isn't really what you what you do. So I'm interested in that because I, I do think that's a thing that comedians butt heads against quite a lot. It's the idea of creating something, then being able to monetize it and then it becoming... A career. So the reason I ask that is because no one ever really expects <laughs> to have a career in stand-up comedy. I didn't yes. certainly. And I, I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's changed in the last, you know, fifteen years since, or well, twenty years since I started doing it. And that that it, I think it has become more of a visible, viable career option for for people starting out in a way that um, I'm not sure it, it was to the certainly to the same extent when uh, when we were 
starting off, sort of fumbling around the, the open mic circuit. Furtive fumblings of the open <laughs> yes. mic circuit that is a good dodgy, description. But, um, <laughs> the, um, but when I left university, I, I didn't really have a career plan, and maybe that was a you know, further legacy of uh, of what uh, what our father had done for for, for his his job. I'd not, not really thought, oh, what yeah, you know, what do I do next? How do I go about building a career? So, you know, I then I worked unsatisfactorily and unhappily for a year <laughs> as a sub editor for a business publishing firm, which was um, even less exciting than it sounds. And then <laughs> started doing the open mic circuit and and was I guess it, doing well enough within a few months. You know, so made it to a couple. Sort of one of the open mic finals in the competitions in Edinburgh, and then started getting offered a few paid paid gigs. So I then I guess started to think, oh, maybe this can be a career, but it, an was actual thing, largely uh, largely accidental, <laughs> to be honest. Considering the type of comedian you you are now, for me this is an interesting question, and I was keen to sort of speak to Armando about this as well. What what is your earliest political memory? And were your family massively political growing up and engaged with politics? Or was that something you found yourself? I I think I found it late, to be honest. I grew up in Tunbridge Wells, which was about the most conservative place that you can grow up in in the 1980s. So And went to a private boys' school. So it was about as Tory an upbringing as you could have. So I don't think I really contemplated politics uh, to any great degree, um, until probably sometime after I'd gone to university. I guess the '97 election, so that would have been my last year at at university. When you know, for the first time in my conscious life, the Conservatives didn't win. That I, I guess I'd started getting more interested in it. But I, I was um, interested in political comedy from what I'd seen on television and also to an extent what I studied at university when I studied ancient Greek comedy as part of my degree which was <laughs> you did the classics right yes, yeah and uh, like so you can do anything you can be prime minister now Andy uh, absolutely yes that's how that works I, mean, I should be prime minister in that I you know I have a, a an essentially pointless degree uh, from Oxford I've never had a proper job and I have no qualifications for being prime minister which makes me an ideal candidate <laughs> for being prime minister <laughs> well I don't think I have quite the same uh, level of um undisclosed children so maybe that's what's holding me back but um <laughs> uh, so i studied the, the comedies of aristophanes who wrote these really kind of political satirical comedies in the um late fifth century bc in athens and and they were absolutely fascinating um sort of total comedy that you know had a mixture of dick jokes and puns and fart jokes and you know high-end political satire and literary parody it was uh it was they were performed to the entire adult male non-slave population of uh, of Athens at the time so they had to appeal on numerous uh, levels so um so that was uh, and you know I loved uh, you mentioned Armando I did the the day to day that was a, that was a bit of a turning point for me in my comedy watching career and I chanced upon an uh, a, an episode of the day to day on television late one night and uh, was just blown away by the brilliance and the inventiveness of it and um so I guess yeah, you know, that was would have been again when I was while I was at university. I guess by the end of my time at university, I'd started to think more about politics. I wouldn't say I was particularly involved in it, but to to think about politics broadly and to think about how politics works in in comedy. So some of those early tiny revolutions were the day to day. Were you into the young ones? What else were you watching? Uh, I quite I quite like I can't really remember. I, I got into Monty Python. That was a that was a. A moment for me that I remember quite clearly. My first exposure to Monty Python about the age of 15 was seeing uh, The Holy Grail. And that 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 really got me on a, on a sort of comedic soul level. Um, uh, so then after that I started... And it was a bit harder to get hold of it. They used to show re- repeats every now and again on television. And I'd record them on a little VHS tape. And then go, don't record over this with a football <laughs> yeah. or the... Well, you probably wouldn't mind the football being yeah. recorded over it. That's what happened to mine. Yeah, we had lots of videos with Monty Python and a mixture of Monty Python and cricket highlights on. Clutter <laughs> up our living room. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, that was um, yeah. I'm trying to think of uh, the, the, the little kind of I guess light bulb moments in 
you know, me watching comedy. I guess my first experience with Monty Python, then seeing the the day to day, and and in terms of stand up, that came a bit later once I started doing stand up, and uh, I saw Robert Newman in Edinburgh. Uh, I think it was in 2000, doing a show which was actually an hour and a half of sort of journalistic, crusading political comedy with 10 minutes of uh, Jarvis in in the middle just to uh, <laughs> <laughs> break it up. And it was, uh, that was, yeah, an inspirational moment where I'd start, I'd, I was doing the, um, the Comedy Zone late night package show doing 20 minutes every night and uh, struggling to be honest yeah i'd been doing the open mic circuit for about a year and a half and i didn't quite have all the gears required to uh, to get through a a, a late night <laughs> package show in edinburgh so it was a bit up and down um and uh, and i was you know wasn't i can't remember specifically what i was doing but it was a little quirky a little surreal but in, and and i sort of wanted to do politics but i don't think i i had the the courage to do it at that point, and then seeing Rob Newman do, you know, just an hour and a half of, uh, of, um, of, of just unapologetic, uncompromising political stand-up was uh, that was quite an inspirational moment for me, and it made me think I needed to try quite a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love Edinburgh is perfect for that because it's so eye-opening it's like the whole world I think we've discussed with a few comics in a month and every emotion that you could ever have or ever do but also getting a go at the comedy zone that's sort of quite a big deal because it was a was a showcase wasn't it yes so people you would get industry people do you remember who you were on with uh, I was on with uh, Danny Boy um, who's ah. a, a great friend of mine and we'd done got a few student gigs before that uh, Spencer Brown uh, who had also known for a bit, and uh, and Karen Taylor, and we were all quite new, and Danny Boy was uh, considerably better than the rest of us, <laughs> and just a you know, kind of natural performer. And uh, he was he started off with him as the MC, and he was slightly too good to be. Well, he's in Scotland as well, so he yeah. is playing to a home crowd a bit as well and he to was, give you guys the benefit. Yeah, of the he doubt. was one of these comedians who. Almost emerged, almost fully formed. He was, just, he was yeah, just brilliant as a as a new new act. So it was really hard for the rest of us to follow him. So I ended up, <laughs> I ended up emceeing quite a lot, and he would would go on at the end. But it was, yeah, it was a, 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 a pretty tough experience. Uh, also, yeah, my girlfriend now wife was away in traveling in China, so I didn't really have any kind of support network to see me through the difficult times. And yeah, there were some pretty rough gigs. And uh, and also some pretty rough reviews, including the very first week. I think our first day there on the Wednesday of the preview night, we got reviewed by the Observer, and uh, the the part of the review that dealt with me was two words long, uh, and those two words were grindingly mediocre. <laughs> so that was and and I hadn't seen that uh, until. Um, I can't remember. Someone <laughs> told me about Someone it. Someone didn't. Say, no, yes. not at the fringe. Yes. Oh, what a. Beast. Yes. So that was. Can I just say to the listeners that is absolutely verboten. You do yes. not do that. One of the sort of unspoken rules of Edinburgh is if you've seen someone's bad review, you don't mention it to them. And some people are very, very good at going. I'm just not reading reviews at all. And you might be able to say to someone because even saying to someone you're having a great one, they'll be like, "Am I? I'm not looking at anything. Ah, don't get in my head." So, like the idea that someone would tell you that it said that, and also, you know, later on, I was going to ask you how you deal with criticism, and we will come back to it. But the fact that you remembered that those two was it your first review? Yes, I think I'd had a review in a student paper before, but that was my first, and it was in a national Sunday newspaper. So (laughs) that was. uh, but yeah, it is part of learning the craft of stand-up, I guess, and it's to deal with baptism of fire, Andy. That the nature of stand-up is you sort of get reviewed every time you tell a joke or you know do a bit of material. There's an instant feedback, and you can sort of tell. So, but but having that in print in my first, I think it was on day three of the my first fringe. Was, uh, that was. Um, Yes, chastening, I guess. So you got that review. What sort of happened around that? Did you think, I can't get up again and go up again? Or were you like, I've just got to keep getting better? Did you? Was it Was it fuel for you or was it disheartening? Um, well, I don't know. I'm 
can't quite remember how I dealt with it at the time. I think because they're just gigs you have to do every night that that I you know, don't I get to, to opt out. Yes, that's the that's the thing. Try and ignore it, and you know, probably had the the, the arrogance of a of a young comedian to think, well, they're wrong. Um, yeah, but it did make me. Uh, it wasn't just you know, it wasn't so much the reviews as the you know reaction I was getting, which was very mixed. Um, and I was, yeah, I, I did start emceeing more, and that made me slightly less tied to the material that I had. Which in my first, first sort of few couple of years in comedy, I was just, you know, I, I had a script that I stuck to rigidly. So it did make me think after, you know, over the course of that tough month, and also seeing these other shows, particularly that that show that Rob Newman did. You know, what am I doing? What kind of comedy do I actually want to do? Because I think in my the, my first phase in stand up, like I guess like most people, I was doing you know anything to get a laugh, and yeah. I guess like that Edinburgh, uh, you know, having a, a a couple of bad reviews and a, quite a few bad gigs made me think, you know, well what what is the purpose of what I'm doing? How can I, you know, it seemed to me that I wasn't very good at that type of comedy, and it wasn't really true to what I wanted to do, so. Um, by the time I went up the following year to do my first solo show, I'd changed pretty much everything about what I was uh, what I was doing. This is quite interesting for people that sort of go to the fringe and and watch comedy. How long was that before you did your first hour? Because this is something that seems to have changed as well. So you, you did sort of twenty minutes at the at the uh, comedy zone. Yeah. But 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 your first hour. How how long had you actually been getting up on stage and doing stand up before you did that? Well, that, I did my first hour the following year, which was quite common at that point to do a package show one year and an hour the next year. And I don't know if it takes people a little longer then. It did cost me a ridiculous amount of money, um, but I was young and um, I needed not to have the money. Is that how the phrase goes? But, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, so I, it, my first Edinburgh was, my, my first full hour show was about two and a half years after I started doing the open mic circuit in... Right. In London, so I'd done a couple of circuits of the student uh, student tour, um, but uh, that was. I mean, I, 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 yeah, a lot of some of my generation of stand-ups would would do that. That we'd go quite quickly into a first hour, and I think that, you know the process of putting together an hour that was just me. Um, I think that does that. That was how I sort of started formulating what kind of comedian I wanted to be and and uh it, it's 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 kind of it clarifies the processes when you don't you know you don't have to fit into a bill or you don't have to you know have play to a certain assumed type of crowd you can just do exactly what you want you can you, there's no one else to blame or uh you know take the credit for or whatever <laughs> it's all yeah it's all you and um i think i did 2009 so i'm thinking that might have been four years and maybe three years of doing straight stand-up yeah as myself not a character but I mean, it do, it makes you exponentially better right it definitely does and um yeah like i said it it makes you think what you know what what am i doing as a comedian and you know it's a hugely rewarding creative process and, and i guess a lot of people we, we sort of get addicted to to that process of trying to create a new show every year and early in in, in my career like i said edinburgh i viewed it sort of as a you know as, as we all do it's part of your I guess career plan and you hope to get noticed or spotted in different ways but after doing it two or three times and it's not really having particularly major effects in that I just you know it, it just became something that I did because I loved doing it and to kind of create new material to build on new ideas and and a new skill so you know I, I, I did it for I think 11 years out of 12 before my children got to well basically once my children had reached school age and then Edinburgh clashed with the school summer holidays and daddy going yes. off to do a, <laughs> a show for a month became quite antisocial uh, but I've sort of <laughs> cut, cut back on the fringe since then and you do sort of shorter runs or every other year and yeah I generally do two weeks rather than the full four-week marathon <laughs> the yeah the entire summer holidays because I think I saw your shows yeah at the stand tended to be where I'd seen and there's just a there's an inventiveness to them it was great coming to see one of your shows 
because it sort of taught me what's possible because you would have props, you had the radio, you had uh, little bits outside of the main narrative that were like pop up, almost like sketchified, these sort of ideas that I then guess that kind of surreal new spin that I then guess fed into the bugle when you first started that. Yeah, yeah. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So let's talk about how the bugle came about first of all like because because there's such a legacy in podcasting I guess in terms of what you were doing there like the earliest sort of people that I can think of that were doing podcasts in the UK is sort of you and John doing the bugle yes well to be honest it wasn't a grand plan to think oh here's a new medium that can be really great for comedy we should do something uh we were offered a deal by the times to do uh I think it was 13 episodes and they basically just gave us a blank canvas. Uh, but the idea was that you know it would have a, have a sort of transatlantic um, feel to it, with uh, John, who'd been doing the Daily Show for just over a year in America, and me uh, um, in Britain. Um, and obviously, because you know we both we'd, we'd we'd worked together for years before John went to the Daily Show. We'd done live shows together. We did uh, a couple of radio series together. Um, that it. it uh, you know, it was a really great thing to do, particularly for me, because you know he he'd obviously was working on the world's leading satirical comedy show. But uh, at that point, uh, there was not a great deal going on in my career, <laughs> Tiff. But um, <laughs> when John went to do The Daily Show in 2006, we'd been doing uh, two series for Radio 4, which had both been cancelled. And we was just about to do a, a, a two-handed Edinburgh show at the stand. Um, and John was offered The Daily Show job well, I don't know, it was a couple, two or three weeks before that. I can't quite remember. And also, we found out that my uh, my wife was pregnant. So it was a, it was all in the space of about three or four weeks. So it was a time of considerable upheaval. Um, so the, the Bugle started the following year, and we were just offered a deal and to, to do this show and had the idea of sort of forming it like an audio newspaper. And in fact, in the early days, it was more... I think we did it more in sort of sections like a Sunday newspaper. Um, and it's become a little looser over over the years. And the podcasting world was considerably smaller then, so it was, I think, easier to to make a bit of an impact, particularly as you know, John had already quite a profile in the States from The Daily Show, and we were hosted by The Times, which so they paid us to do it so we could devote the time to doing it, and, which was very rare in podcasting, I think, in those days, to be paid to do it. So we treated it like a radio show and we would you know try and write a good show every week and it um and within you know a few weeks even when you know we only had a, a few thousand listeners I started to notice that people would come up at at live shows and say oh, I've listened to your podcast which you know I'd done quite a bit of radio 4 stuff with much bigger audiences and it never really <laughs> no one said that well it, well it hadn't really translated into live audiences in the same way right. I think that's because people consume podcasts in a in a different way to radio, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's been so hugely successful as a medium, um, not just for comedy, but in you know, in all, it's a it's a very sort of personal medium. And people, if you if you start listening to it, it's, you listen to it in a more committed way. You tend to be actively listening to it rather than the radio being on in 
in the background and and you know, obviously now a lot of radio shows become or are podcasted by the BBC and other people that 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 started to become more of the case with radio as well but at the time it was clear quite early on to me that this was a really um fantastic medium for for comedy not just because you know with audio you can be really creative quite easily you can make things sound amazing in a way that making things look amazing on 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 TV or or, or you know any kind of visual medium is a lot harder and so it, there's it, it was a kind of it was a great blank canvas for us the times you know didn't never interfered with what we were what we were doing um and i think actually in time they probably forgot that, that we were still doing it because the person who commissioned <laughs> it had, had moved on so we had we had 4 years uh with them before they uh, ushered us onwards but yeah that was yeah i mean it, that slightly saved my career to be honest because we were going absolutely nowhere at the time and um my i think my stand up would probably stagnate i think you know i've been working with with john in doing live shows for two or three years and and for that to just it just sort of ended abruptly because he got the job in the states yeah. and that left me slightly floundering around thinking well what do i do now so the bugle was uh your savior it was to a large extent i think yeah. <laughs> did you set out to make it as as a political and satirical so you were you wanted to do an audio newspaper but was that your intention? Did you have? Did you sit down and kind of both of you go right? We want it to do this, this, and this, or we want it to speak truth to power, or we want to be silly. We want to, you know. Did you did you sit down and kind of hash that out with each other? Not or really. Did it just form. Not really. That was basically the way we'd done comedy together and individually, really. Um, anyway, so it was really just a, an expression. And at the radio series we did. Uh, did a thing called the Department on Radio Four with with Chris Addison that was, uh, you know, a real mixture of politics and silliness, and you know, in our live shows as well, we'd had, you know, we'd try to blend that, and I think that you know, it's quite an effective way of doing political comedy if you leaven it with um, nonsense, uh, or you know, you present <laughs> you present a serious point in a ridiculous way. And you know, you see that John has sort of carried that on through his uh, his stellar career in America. So yeah, the the bugle was really we you know we'd both done you know topical political comedy for several years, so it it sort of made sense to to do that. And um, and again, you know, to, if it was just banging on about politics for forty minutes, it might uh, get a, a <laughs> I guess a little heavy. So we we would try always try. And that was the nice thing about the the format of it being loosely a newspaper meant that we could throw in you know sport and. Uh, well, even a cryptic crossword in the early days. <laughs> and, uh, did one one clue a week. Long term buglers may remember um, <laughs> some real long game happening yeah, there. Was, if you yeah. want to, <laughs> if you want to finish the podcast. Well, I got sort of two questions that have come out of that, but one I feel like might be better for the latter part of the um, of the podcast. So I'll save that. But you brought up Chris Addison. He's sort of in the bugle fold quite recently. So it's kind of changed quite dramatically when you sort of brought it when you were like okay let's change this so can you tell me a bit about the thought process behind the roster of people that you have now and and how that all came about um well once john started doing last week tonight i mean initially he thought he'd actually have a bit more time than when he was on the daily show which was a sort of week-long job but it became very clear that anchoring a show like that and being just totally committed to every stage of the creative process that he just didn't have time to do a podcast every week as well so um yeah we came to an agreement that he'd stopped doing it and then I had to decide do I try to keep this going and if so how well because you've created this audience of people who come to watch your live comedy because they listen so specifically so it's that must be a point for you again where you were like you were sort of floundering and then you had this thing yes. were you like oh god yeah well I've got this great thing and is it going to disappear now yes so i mean that was that was definitely a fact i mean i absolutely love doing it to have a a weekly outlet for what it, you know with no sort of editorial oversight from anyone it's all you know I could talk about whatever I wanted in whatever way I wanted so you know that's almost the dream as a comedian so uh, yeah I decided that you know I wanted to carry it on or so as you said we had a, a, a good and very loyal audience 
dotted around the world. So, so then I thought, well, how do I do this? Do I, do I get what, you know, one, try and find one other co-host. Uh, and I thought, you know, well, that's, I tried to build up a stable of co-hosts and initially there were, um, I think four or five people that I, that I asked to do it and it works all right for a bit. Obviously I couldn't replicate the rapport I had with John that even from the very first episode we did in on other side of the Atlantic, because we'd been friends and work colleagues and work, you know, creative partners for so long, it, it just sort of clicked straight away. And, you know, we have, you know, complementary styles. So that I, I couldn't re- recreate that with people that I didn't have that same kind of history with. Obviously, with, I had a, a different type of rapport with Helen, who who, who was one of the early <laughs> co-hosts. Going back the to sibling, the going, sibling rivalry. Yeah, going back to when I first met her when she was about twenty-four hours old. <laughs> so the moment I think it really started working better as a and became almost a, a, a new and slightly different show was when I went to the Melbourne Festival. And about six months after we'd relaunched and did um, a couple of shows there with two co-hosts. And that's the first time that Alice Fraser uh, did it. And suddenly by having two rather than one co-host, you have instantly there was a much more dynamic conversation. And that, I guess, compensated for not having that that sort of rapport that I'd had with John. That, you know, it was starting to evolve with uh, the, the co-hosts as I got to know them a bit better and you know, work better with some than others. But then having two guests on a show just, I think, really brought brought it to life again. Well, the response is not just hanging on one person yeah. constantly so the three of you can throw the ball. And yes. and also, you know, when you're doing the show, from my point of view, I like I sort of know that you're going to do a couple of set pieces that I'm going to really love and respond and be able to, you know, just a d- different voices in the mix, yeah. which make it lovely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yes. I just wanted to compliment um, you. <laughs> thank you. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's I think when it I started to think, oh, this this you know, long term, this 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 can become, you know, something new, but that's still discernibly the you know i guess a descendant of the uh the first phase of uh of the bugle and it's um and it became a lot more fun to do as well there was sort of slightly less pressure on me as host to drive everything if there was you know there were two guests rather than than one and said that you know the, the the lines of communication were more interesting and dynamic when it's a triangle rather than a straight line yeah so and that's when nish came in well when nish, nish was was in from the start and and it worked pretty pretty well with him because he'd listened to the show for years. I knew him uh, from the circuit as well, and we'd done shows together and already got on well. Um, Bugle super fan Nish Kumar. Uh, yeah, so, but uh, and also it then it, you know enabled me to get more and more people involved and um, you know to build up that stable. Um, so I think yeah, that's that's when the you know the Bugle Mark Two started really functioning well as a as a show i feel like it's got a quite uh in the in the original iteration you were sort of quite transatlantic and now it's a bit more of a worldview you've got correspondence from sort of around the world which i really like about the bugle i think it gives me a unique when i'm listening when i'm you know i'm not in an episode and i listen to the episodes that i can hear a perspective or something about a country that maybe I just didn't know so much about the politics about. So I think it's a really good entry into a country's politics when a Bugle's <laughs> correspondence uh, comes on. Does that sound like it's it's quite educational in a way? Uh, well, I'm not sure you should be relying on the Bugle for uh, for educational purposes, but I, I, I see what you're, um, <laughs> you're saying. And, and we, when I did it with John, we'd always, because, you know, we had, transatlantic side but we'd always tried to cover stories from around the world um as well so uh but you know having people from different places and in different places definitely uh enhance that uh i think so it's always you know something that i've tried to make sure that it never becomes too focused on well either britain or america so having people from different countries definitely helps that and i would like to say you are you are great for getting different voices on as well you know, and lots of women 
that's one of the things about the bugle that I really love. There's lots of female voices on it, and I just uh, I, I like to shout that out because it's it's um, it's rarer than you'd think <laughs> that people <laughs> actively go and seek out voices to kind of go. Okay, well, I'm covering this sort of part, so who else can I get and and bring into the mix? And uh, so, yeah, so I, w- I would like to give a shout out to the Bugle for doing that. Oh, is that thanks. something you sort of actively set out to do? Do you think, or has it just been by accident? You've kind of gone um, a, a bit of both. I think. I mean, I, I, I mean, in the initial rotation, I think Helen was the only woman that I had in it, but I'm. Yeah, I think when I started to really think about who I wanted to get on it, I thought, you know, comedy has you know, always been too male, essentially. So, yeah, it just made sense. And, you know, there's so many... I mean, I try not to think too much about having to cover various bases. I just yeah. try to get funny people on. But at the same time, I think, well, I want to, you know, there's a range of voices, a range of opinions, of perspectives. And obviously having more women helps that and there's lots of very funny women around that certainly in in you know, the way comedy has often been done don't always have that platform here's a question i wanted to ask it sort of came up as you were talking about it how do you keep your sense of kind of like silliness when the world is crumbling around you when it's like like in the past few years it's felt like politically a lot of huge stuff happening. And I know there's always stuff happening, but, you know, in the wake of Trump and Brexit and everything, how do you keep that silliness when it seems like everything is bleak? Uh, well, it can be quite hard, but at the same time, that if w- without it, things almost become worse. Yeah. And also, I mean, just from a personal point of view, it's, I guess, my comic style has always had that element to it because I don't really have the persona or really the life experience to just rant about stuff. It doesn't suit me, and I'm not very good at it. So the absurdity was always a part of the way I did, the way I've done political comedy. Um, And, you know, I think it's a a way, sort of hinted at before, of presenting or talking about really difficult, often quite depressing issues in a more kind of acceptable and accessible way, is to just lighten it with with that you know absurdity or you know bits of surrealism or or really just bringing enough comedic inventiveness to it that it doesn't stray into just sort of opinion or journalism that by just keeping trying to make sure that there's enough light in the in the content that it um that enables me to do to to address you know big and quite often complicated difficult upsetting depressing <laughs> political issues particularly if uh, depending on your political persuasion <laughs> yeah so I, I guess that's yeah I mean uh, and also like I said it's the way that I've largely done comedy anyway is to have quite a lot of silliness involved I was asking earlier how you sort of felt about criticism and equally how do you deal with praise because uh, I've you know, I've given you a couple of compliments and you've just run away from them a bit. Is that how you? All right. Uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but, you know, it's very British, isn't it, as well, I think, to um, to bat back. I kind of like that about us, I've got to say. To kind of go, ah, no, that's a ah, piece of shit. You know, when someone pays you a compliment. But how do you how do you handle praise? I don't know, I've not really thought about that. I mean, I, I guess going back to reviews early on, in Edinburgh, where that's sort of the first place that, as a comedian, anyone bothers reviewing you, and no one notices apart from other comedians, really. But um, I found that uh, so the following year after I did the Comedy Zone, did my first Edinburgh show, um, that went very well, objectively, in pretty much everything apart from ticket sales, <laughs> and I got a load of good reviews. They all came out in the last week. Just just late enough not to impact uh, <laughs> on bums on the seats overall income and bums <laughs> on seats. Um, uh, but I found that sort of waiting for them and reading papers and reading other people's reviews just sort of played with my mind in a way that was not helpful. And so basically, from that year on, I didn't really bother reading anything, and I found it. I didn't really have the mental strength not to be affected by 
reviews either way, whether they were good or bad. Right. But I did have the mental strength to just avoid them completely, which is a much lower <laughs> level of mental strength. But it actually kind of just simplifies the whole process. I think having had not just reviews, but yeah, so I had some bad reviews and some good reviews in the first kind of uh, the formative years of my career. And in terms of gigs, I, I always had a particularly in sort of club gigs, weekend club nights doing 20 minute sets, whatever. I always had a very mixed record. There were times when I, I'd go really well and times I'll go really badly so um you know that mixture of success and failure if you let either one (laughs) affect you too much then it's going to uh be have an adverse effect right so you have to go the uh i think the Maya kind of stoic approach stoic yeah yeah yes i love a bit of ancient stoicism i was going to say Maya angelou i don't pick it up i don't lay it down which is you know good or bad is to try not to let them affect you and also you know, having been doing anything long enough but particularly comedy which has that instant response from an audience you sort of know when something's good and when something's not and um so hopefully after a, a few years and a few good and bad experiences with with feedback of different kinds you know, i learned to manage my own reaction to my own work so one of your processes that kind of reveals does reveal to me one of your processes that criticism and praise you kind of go don't engage with it because you can't keep it out you can't not let it affect what you're doing yes can you look at stuff after it when you've got some distance from it when you've finished a show when you've finished a tour when you've yes i think that can help so if there's a common thread in a number of different reviews that can be quite helpful to pick up on but I think, you know, generally, once you've been doing stand-up for a few years, you ought to be able to sort of work out yourself what's what needs improving. Yes, <laughs> so. yeah. Mine's always editing. <laughs> <laughs> always editing. Just stop trying to cram too much. Leave them wanting more, Paul says to me every year. <laughs> yeah, no, that's nonsense. Always leave them wanting slightly less. <laughs> <laughs> So what are your personal tiny revolutions, things that have made a difference to you in your in your daily life? And by that, I mean kind of like often in terms of creativity, we talk about morning routines. Um, so like Hemingway would go for a walk or someone might say, oh, I do morning pages. So I sit down and I, what about the rest of the day? <laughs> because comedians work at <laughs> night. So I'm always like, what do you do? Do you know, do you meditate? Do you have processes? Do you do things to get you into a, a space of creativity? Um, I've never really had anything resembling a reliable process. And the one thing that gets me writing and creating essentially is a deadline, whether that's an, uh, having to do a new Edinburgh show or um, you know, with the Bugle having a show every week, which has been one of the many great things for me personally about doing doing the Bugle is it's it's sort of forced me into a routine where i have to create something new every week that you know without that structure i'm not sure i'd have the discipline to do so um i'm not sure i really have anything other than i mean the pressure of time does generally get the creative juices flowing i mean there's a couple of little things i find doing cryptic crosswords gets my mind thinking laterally in a way that is really good for then trying to write comedy um, I think I remember you saying this once before, and I think that's a that's a really great tip. That's a really great, yeah, just thinking about stuff in a slightly different way. Yes, so that's I mean that's something I do quite a lot now. But no, in terms of a a routine or a discipline or some kind of uh, insightful life hack, I'm afraid I, I've never quite never quite come across that. <laughs> Not got there. Not no walking or no. I I tend to find. And I'm happy now that we've eased the lockdown a bit. I'm sort of energised when I'm around people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be people that I'm engaging with. But I like to go to a cafe and then take out right. my notebook and hear people have all of that hum and and notice, maybe hear bits of what people are talking about or see a thing that makes me go, oh, God, <laughs> you know, that I've got to sometimes, you know, and that's one of the things about comedy. I think rage <laughs> could be a starting point a lot of the time so I've got to try and sort of 
climb down from rage into something that's funny, from something that's annoyed me or made me furious, to then find the way into that. Do you start with something that makes you angry or a political injustice or you you know something that you look at and you go oh god that's just so in- insane like I'm gonna write about that what's the how does that work for you um well again a lot of it just comes down to having a weekly deadline so you know when I read or watch the news I'm generally thinking oh, is this something that we can talk about in the bugle or now I'm doing the news quiz on radio four is this a story that would be yeah. good to do on that um and and then the task is you know how can how can I address that uh, in an interesting way, um, but yeah again with yeah you know, without without the deadline of a of a <laughs> weekly uh, podcast I, I I don't know quite how I'd go about it. I've been doing the bugle for so long now that it's just that's sort of the main driver of my creativity and a lot a lot of what I do in stand up the one I do uh, you know an Edinburgh show. I'll often pick up an idea that I've written for the bugle, which is the bugle is almost kind of first draft a lot of the time. I write quite quickly to that deadline, and uh, you know, quite early on when I was doing it with John, I just wrote in almost an improvisational way, where trying to think of the first idea and just write it out and see what comes out. Then often I'll develop those ideas for for stand up subsequently, but you know, without that that weekly outlet and deadline as what mostly motivates my creativity are there ever stories that you look at or stuff that you go i just i can't i can't find the funny in this anymore I've, i think i've spoken about it in every way it's possible to talk about this thing uh, now or, or is that a challenge to you do you like that challenge of going what else can i find in this uh, terrain um there are definitely stories like that i mean i think covid has become become like that that it's we're now in a sort of seemingly endless cycle of r- repeating elements of the s- the the story and the politics uh, over and over again in sort of cycles of varying lengths um and with you know brexit as an issue became comedically quite tiresome <laughs> um and and trump as well and, and uh, trump was an interesting challenge for comedians because you know in the age of sort of internet comedy um, and the you know ubiquity of um, of all kinds of topical comedy. The challenge to to try to address Trump as a comedian was to find some way of dealing with it that hadn't already been done, and that I think became harder and harder. And and you know he was although you know what he did varied. It was essentially you know the same satirically. It was almost the same thing for four years. I did this thing in my live show where I printed out his brain as a, <laughs> yes, so do you remember this, this. It was a, yeah. so, and it came out cauliflower? a cauliflower that I put yeah. on a mic- microphone stand and stuck an <laughs> electrode in it well some kind of prong and then I chopped up chopped up Trump speaking and then made him talk about cricket and that was the, the lengths I had to go to to have a way of dealing with Trump comedically that I was pretty sure no one else was doing to have Donald Trump talking about <laughs> 1920s Australian cricketers. <laughs> that is beautiful because that perfectly sort of summarises what you do to me. Yeah. Like, like, and you've you've had to bring him into one of your one of your loves. You've had to bring cricket in to go. I've got like you know, almost making him not palatable, but like, how can I deal with this? F- now i'm so i'm so tired because he became self-satirizing as well yes we just all all of us any of us that kind of deal in any kind of political comedy we're like we just can't keep can't keep doing the same stuff about him because it's beyond beyond parody but it's interesting that you bring cricket up because i do want to talk cricket a bit more so you're like kind of career in cricket has sort of run parallel with your career in comedy or comedy got you into like doing some cricket commentary first. Is that how that worked? Yeah, I mean, again, that came from the bugle. That um, I talked about cricket quite a bit in the bugle, and it always had this element where a lot of our audience was American. So you know, I would criticise them for not not adopting cricket as their national sport, and they had the chance. <laughs> and someone who worked at the Crick Info website 
a chap called Will Luke used to listen to the Bugle and he just emailed me and said, would you like to write for us? And I, so I, the cricket was a lifelong obsession from when I was sort of six or seven years old. And, um, you know, I'd always loved it. And like, like I said, I, I, I wanted to get into, I wanted to be a cricket journalist essentially when I was a kid. In fact, when I started doing the open mic circuit, um, uh, in that period where I had a job as a sub-editor at a publishing house, I applied for a job at the Cricketer magazine and got to the last two, but then didn't didn't get the job. And had I done that, I'm not, I don't know if I would have done comedy. Right. And I don't know if I would have enjoyed that job. It was based in a small porter cabin about a mile from where my parents lived in Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> and I'm not sure that would have been ideal uh, in my mid-twenties to be uh, moving back home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so then I started writing in 2008 for crick info and started um writing about cricket stats because um yeah basically they wanted a funny column every week and i thought there's only so many funny things that i could say about cricket so i found you know, i always knew quite a lot about the stats and they had this stats engine on their website and i started playing with that and that sort of became my angle was cricket stats with a bit of humor and then i, I wrote for them for eight or nine years and then via that then got into the radio commentary which i started doing five years ago and that was you know genuinely a childhood dream of mine that I used to listen I was going to say a dream come true yeah it was properly that you know I used to listen to the radio and they had a chap called Bill Frindle the bearded wonder would do the stats and I used to think oh, I'd love to do that and that's that is now a large part of my life so it's a yeah every day that I'm on uh, I mean I just I still can't quite believe I get paid to watch cricket but every day that I'm on test match special I try to take a few moments to just appreciate how incredible it is that I'm basically paid to uh, indulge my lifelong obsession if I wanted to talk in a sort of uh I was gonna say it I, I was gonna say in self-help language uh that's acknowledging presence and gratitude <laughs> okay. yes present oh, so uh, in the moment of yes. like kind of going which is something worth, you know, trying to do, just consciously kind of going, this is, I'm doing this. Yes. Well, I try to do that in in stand-up as well, particularly, you know, doing a, a solo show and you've got an hour or on a tour show, might have, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. To just, there's moments, particularly when it's going really well, where you can slightly step back and think, oh, this what an amazing thing to be doing this is. And, um, yeah, it's very, very rewarding like that. Is there a cricketer that you look at and you think, I could draw, I mean, this is a left-field question, but that's the closest, like, career parallels I could draw to me? Someone whose journey in cricket has been similar to your journey in Oh, in I comedy. don't know, actually. Because I think a bit of a late bloomer. Because I yes. look at the news quiz and I think, wow, you know, like, that is such a, like, perfect... You almost, like, you created a new genre and way of doing this thing but of course that's the perfect like you know so I, I I think of you a bit as a late bloomer yeah I think that's I think that's right or at least you know I guess that level of success that I have had particularly in the last few years with with test match special and the news quiz did come after pretty much 20 years so I was yeah. always sort of successful enough to keep going without ever and you know the bugle was I think very successful for for what it is but um it was a kind of gradual process, and then I sort of had these sort of lucky breaks in the last couple of years that have uh, built on that. So I don't know who I'd compare that with in, in in cricketing terms. I guess someone who doesn't play in for their test national test team until they're thirty odd, and then has a few good years. But hopefully, those few good years will last quite a long time. Who would who would that be? Is there someone? Is Ooh, that someone? Um, I guess um, Andrew Strauss didn't play for England until he was. 20 some Graham Swan came in 28 29 had very good very good careers but um, I do think there are quite a lot of parallels between cricket and stand up particularly batting and stand up that uh that, that I mean if you're into cricket you sort of see these things of that you know mixture of you know success and failure that sometimes nothing to do with you sometimes it's your own fault sometimes you get lucky sometimes you don't um and you know particularly with with club gigs there's times where, you know, as a, as a batsman in a difficult situation, you might have to defend a bit and then it gets easier. And the same with a difficult gig, you might just see off the first few minutes and then you can expand. Other times it's just clicks right from the start. So there were, uh, there's elements of uh, similar, as a as a repressed cricketer, someone, I, you know, I'm essentially, I'm an international cricketer trapped in a incompetent village cricketer's body. So <laughs> stand, stand up, stand up was sort of the closest I could get to, 
to to living out my dreams of being an international athlete. <laughs> I would buy a book, How to Be a Comedian or The Life of a Comedian Through the Eyes of Cricket. So right. I'm hoping you're going to do I that. I might well write that at some point, Tiff. Yeah, I think you should. I think you should. <laughs> so I think cricket is a perfect way to... I can't think of a better way to end a, a conversation. Tiny revolutions. Because cricket has been so revolutionary to you and, and fulfilling that dream, I think that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. Thanks for coming on Tiny Revolutions. Uh, thanks for making Tiny Revolutions, <laughs> should I say, a Bugle production. Uh, nice. Bringing... nice to have you in the stable, Tiff. Yes, I love it. What a great stable to be in. I feel like a thoroughbred. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming on Tiny Revolutions. Uh, this has been Andy Zaltzman. Thank you so much, Andy, for sharing with us your Tiny Revolutions. You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.